Hello, and thanks for tuning in to the Grace Church of Ocala Sermon Podcast. We are equipping disciples who make disciples in Ocala, Florida. What follows is an audio recording from our Sunday morning worship gathering, and we hope that you will find it encouraging, challenging, and helpful. If you have any questions or would like more information about Grace Church of Ocala, please visit our home on the web, ocalagrace.org. I'm excited to start our, uh, our new series uh, called Sojourn, just about, you know, how do we make it through life? Um, like I was telling the kids, we don't really get to choose that we have it. It was just kind of bestowed upon us, and so now we have to deal with it. And we get to choose how we deal with it, and that's what we're going to be exploring in this sermon, uh, in this series, and, uh, and more specifically, in the sermon. Um, my dad, uh, I think some of you have met him before, and uh, one, of the th- one of his defining characteristics is that he's just super, super generous. If he has something, he wants to share it. And that's one of the huge benefits of being his kid, is, is he wants to share it with me because I'm his son, right? Um, and it, he would be super embarrassed if I told you all the stuff that he's given to me and given to our family. Um, but just suffice it to say that anything like kind of nice that we have, um, we, didn't, we didn't pay for it. Yeah, either you know, Jesse's parents gave it to us or, or my parents gave it to us just because he's, he's so generous. Um, and maybe you, do you know somebody like that? Somebody who's just generous if they have something they wanna, they wanna share it? Yeah, we know these kind of people and we like to think that maybe we, we are those kind of people, um, but maybe sometimes we're not. Um, one of the things that dad says constantly, though, as he's given us all these really good gifts, and I think he learned this from his dad, um, is uh, this is my inheritance. Is don't wait for me to die before you get a big payoff. Like, I'm spending my inheritance on you now so I can see you enjoy it. I'm, so don't expect nothing when I'm gone. Like, when I'm gone, I'm gone. So he's always saying, if he gives us something, this is, this is your inheritance. I'm, I'm, I'm paying it for you now. Um, but do we, what, do we, what is an inheritance? A gift? Okay. Something somebody else worked for. Something somebody else worked for that you get. Okay. Um, is, it, is inheritance something that we think about daily? When do we think about inheritance? After they're gone, and especially if it's somebody we didn't know very well, and they, for some reason, left us a big sum, I think that's kind of you know our, our hope in the back of our head when we think of inheritance. Like, oh man, that Uncle Fred that I never talked to. Um, but I, I, I digress. Day-to-day life doesn't hinge on our inheritance so much. That's what makes this first chapter of First Peter so intriguing, because he's talking about this great inheritance and how it affects us in our day-to-day walk. Let's pray together real quick before we dive in. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and how you have spoken, how you have proved yourself over and over throughout all of history. Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us, and we thank you for opening our hearts to receive your word this morning. Lord, we pray that you would be guiding and directing us in our understanding, and Lord, that you would be working to change our hearts, to shape them to look more like you. We thank you again. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. 
So we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1. If you're using the story Bibles that we have here, that's on page 1, or excuse me, it's on page 855. And um, our, our main, our key principle for the whole morning is hopefully follow the time-tested, life-giving shepherd. And we're going to unpack that. Each of those words has a little bit of a deeper meaning than what it originally looks like. Um, but hopefully follow the time-tested, life-giving shepherd. And this chapter is packed full. And I'm nervous. Because I have two pages of notes when I usually only bring one. So we're going to truck through this. And, 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 and I would love to talk with you about this. If we, if we hit something and don't dwell on it, let's talk about it later. Um, but, but, but first... Um, our, first, our first point is in, in verses 1 and 2. It's a really short point. Our hope is in our time-tested shepherd. Verses 1 and 2, let's read them together. I'm going to have to turn there. I wasn't paying attention. Verses 1 and 2, 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So we're going to stop there. Our first point is our hope is in our time-tested shepherd. And this is a point that's actually going to be carried out throughout the rest of the verses that we look at. Um, but, but first, these letters are kind of, this, this first couple of verses are like the envelope that a letter is packaged in. It says, who's it to and who's writing it? So the return address is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We know Peter. And uh, some of us can relate with him. He's kind of the guy that would speak first and then think about what he was saying. And Jesus was constantly doing really good lessons through Peter. Um, and and, him, and him and Jesus were really, really close while Jesus was here the first time walking around. And so he's writing to these people who are elect exiles of the dispersion in these five areas. What does that mean? Elect exiles of the dispersion. It's... This is a really confusing phrase. And what's confusing is one of the things that Peter likes to do, and he does in this letter really well, is he will take an Old Testament concept, apply it to the New Testament believers with a slightly altered meaning in light of what Jesus has done. So Jesus changes everything. And so the story gets kind of, these words have a different meaning. And, so, and usually you can tell that something's difficult if you look at three or four different English translations and they're all different. This is one of those, those verses that every single book, every single translation you look at is going to be a little bit different. So I think that uh, a lot of us, uh, we, we preach from the English Standard Version, um, and a lot of us here like to use the uh, New American Standard Version, and that says, reside as aliens who are chosen. So those who reside as aliens who are chosen. The idea is, you're a foreigner. You don't, you're, you're in a place that you weren't born. You're not a native. And you're living there. But God has chosen you. Which are kind of these competing ideas, like if you're in a foreign place and the people there are like, oh, you don't really belong here so much. Um, but God is like, no, I chose, I chose them. So there's already this tension. 
And this imagery is going to be um, a steering metaphor. It's going to be how we understand the rest of the book, and it's going to be a steering metaphor for our series going through the book of 1 Peter. But what's really, really interesting, and there's a lot of historical data that we could go into, one of the things that I think is really, really interesting is Roman emperors, when they would conquer a new land, one of the things they would do is they would send a bunch of Romans, uh, high-class Romans, to that new place to be like, you're going to make Rome popular there. So you, you, you import the rich people, and the rich people kind of lead the society. So I go to a non-Roman place, and I put high-class Roman people there, and then everybody starts to look more Roman. That was their thing. One thing that's super interesting is that there is one emperor who was really famous for doing this. His name was Claudius. And something else that's really interesting is he's reported as having sent out what could be a bunch of Christians from Jerusalem, or from Rome, excuse me. Christians living in Rome, he, he, would, he would send them out because they were kind of troublemakers, so you just you let them, just get them out of the city. Um, and not only that, but he happened to do this in the five areas that are listed here. So all of that is super circumstantial. And there's a lot of different discussion about what exactly is going on. But I tend to think, with that circumstantial evidence, that there is a literal way that these people are foreigners in, in, a, in a land. They're, they're residing as aliens. And yet, this is also a spiritual metaphor, as we'll see, for believers living in the world. So it's kind of a both and. It's really interesting. And, we, and again, this, this chapter is packed, and we could stay here forever, but we're going to move on. Um, Notice that this is a Trinitarian statement. Trinitarian, uh, the Trinity, which is the understanding that God is all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but there's one God. Those, all three are right here. Notice that. The foreknowledge of the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, and for obedience to Jesus Christ. And all three persons are involved in our salvation at all times. You see the time aspects of what's going on here. Foreknowledge being, I knew this before it happened. And the sanctification, which we learned in our Galatians series, is an ongoing process of following God. And then um, obedience to Jesus Christ is part of that sanctification. And sprinkling of his blood would be the ultimate cleansing when we stand before God and are right there with him. And there's, again, a lot of interpretations of how to take those verses, but that seems to make the most sense to me. So. That's the time-testedness of our Father. It goes all throughout the rest of what we're going to read. Our hope for you and I is in the time-tested shepherd. And if you look here, um, this is a bridge, all right? Um, it's called the Caravan Bridge, and it crosses the river Melez in Izmir, Turkey today. That's Izmir, Turkey. Turkey, the country, not Thanksgiving. We're getting close to that. But, um, so this is a, a modern-day picture. And, uh, I mean, it just kind of looks like a bridge, and there's a cars on it, and you can see, like, a Coke sign in the back, so you know it's modern. Um, and this is a little bit of an older picture. There's no trash in the river, so you know it's a little bit older. Um, when would you say that that bridge was built, if you just had to guess? A long time ago. A long time ago. It's not really impressive. Eight, around 850 B.C. 
That bridge has been standing and been in use since 850 BC. It's still there today. You can drive across it. You can drive across a bridge that very likely the Apostle Paul walked over. That bridge is time-tested. And our Father created the world and the world that we live in and it keeps going and it's still in use today. So we'll see this over and over again as we go on. But something that's interesting is in these, in these areas that Peter addresses, um, in Galatia, Pontus, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, um, there's really not a huge Christian presence there, if any at all. So he's writing to Christians that are there that they're, they're not there anymore. They're gone. So in, the pers- in God's perspective of the world, he's time-tested. His mission goes on, even when the believer's there I haven't done so hot. All right, that's two verses. We're going to keep moving. Let's look at, uh, at verses 3 through 12, and we'll see that our hope is alive in our life-giving shepherd. Start with me in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ." Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was, your, that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look." So our hope is in the time-tested shepherd. Our hope is in the life-giving shepherd. And in these first few verses, in verses 3 through 5, we see that Jesus has given us new life for his glory. That, that verse, verse 3, is so packed. I feel like we could just camp here um, for a whole day and still not exhaust it. God gave us new life through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. We were dead. We were alive, but, but we were dead spiritually. And God has given us new life because Jesus conquered death himself. He was resurrected and God said, that is the payment. That will wash away the sins of these people and now they can truly live. This new life that we have, it manifests itself in a living hope. What is hope? How, how, do, how do we define hope? 
You can talk. An expectation of things to come? Yeah. Is it a confident expectation or kind of a... It's a confident expectation in things to come. Great job. It's, it's, but in our world, when we're out, when we're not in this, in, this, in this place with these people, when somebody says, I hope this will happen, like, are they confident about it? No, no. When the, when the Bible uses hope, it's as good as done. We can be confident that God is going to do this. So the new life that God has given us, it manifests itself in this confident hope that Jesus is going to do what he said he's going to do. We can trust him. He's time-tested. But he's also life-giving. He's giving us new life. And check this out. The inheritance that, that we are looking forward to is untouchable. What are the words that he uses? Imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Um, imperishable. Uh, more imperishable than an MRE than a, a military uh, food thing. More imperishable than that. Undefiled, that, that's how it gets better than an MRE. Undefiled, there's, there's no impurity in this. And it's unfading. The longer that it stands, it doesn't start to lose some of its luster. It's always as glorious as it has been. Our inheritance is untouchable. Time cannot, and we don't, we live in a world that's constantly in decay. Everything we see around us is constantly in decay. And we, we can't grasp this. Our inheritance, it can't be touched by the things that we are so weighted down by. And we can be confident in that. We have a living hope. Not a dead hope. So when you realize this, what's your response? He starts it in verse 1. Or in, in, in the first verse, in verse 3. What's, what's the response? Praise Him. Bless the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless Him. Praise Him. Let Him know, hey, I really appreciate everything you've done for me because I can't do it myself. I'm stuck in this decaying world and you have brought me out. We're, we're like sheep. And, and we follow our shepherd but here's a unique thing about God being our shepherd. God took a, a world full of dead sheep and made them alive to follow him. It was going to be a little bit too graphic to put some dead sheep up here, so I just went with the living ones. But you get what I'm saying? Like The, the sheep were dead. There's a pile of dead sheep corpses. And God looks at them and says, you are mine gives us new life, and says, follow me. If you're a dead sheep that finds yourself living again and following a good shepherd who really takes care of you, we read Psalm 23 this morning, what's your attitude towards the shepherd? Are you, are you kind of begrudging? Like, ah, just leave me alone. No! You're excited. You made me alive again, and now I get to follow you with my own life. Like, we're together in this. Oh, me. So, so, so do you realize, one, do you realize that you were dead? You were a dead sheep laying in the field. And when you trusted Jesus to save you, he made you alive. You are alive. So here's, here's a sticking point. If you haven't trusted Jesus yet, you're still a dead sheep laying in the field with no hope of following God. You can't follow God if you're dead. Period. So that's the first thing. You need to realize Jesus already paid for all my sin. 
I'm dead in my sin, and if I want to follow him, I need to trust him to make me alive. That's the first step. But then when you look back and you say, Jesus, I was dead, and now I'm not. I have new life in you. Do you bless him? Do you praise him for what he's done? Is that the attitude of your heart? Because this is a shift for us. We are, we, are, we are so prone to wander. We're so prone to focus on what's right in front of us that we forget what's already happened for us. This is why Jesus commands us to remember me in celebrating communion. Remember what I've already done. So it's exciting. Do you bless him? Do you praise him? And if you haven't trusted him, then you are dead. You can't follow the shepherd unless he makes you alive. Really, really cool stuff. Jesus has given us new life for his glory. And in the next verses, we'll see our hope in the future allows us to be joyous in the face of trials. Joyous. Joy. Rejoice. Our living hope is secure in God. We have confidence in it, and we can rejoice through any circumstances. Here's, here's what's really interesting is, is Peter is, is describing this wonderful thing, this inheritance that's kept with us that is completely untouchable by the fallen world that we live in, but he's also acknowledging, hey, it doesn't always work out the way we want it to. Life is disappointing, and there are things that God will take us through to make us stronger. If you've been dead for a while, what's the state of your muscles? And so maybe he'll take you up a little bit of a steeper hill so that your muscles get stronger. There are tests that he will put you through to make you stronger in him. Not every, not, now I have to put on balance too that not every difficulty you face in life is because God's testing you and trying to make you strong. Some of it you bring on yourself. And we'll get to that later on in the series. But, but, but there are things that God wants to test you with. He wants you to be tested by. Faith is trusting in what and who you cannot see. So what does he say about these tests? You rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. It's temporary. And here's, and here's again where we can get caught up in our perspective. Anytime you're in a difficult situation, I've never faced a trial that in the moment I thought was temporary. When you are in the trial, when you are wrestling with what feels for your life, to survive and come out on the other side, it does not feel temporary. I, 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 my heart goes out to people that constantly struggle with depression. Like, that does not feel temporary. And so it can almost sound insensitive for Peter to say, these things, it's just now for a little while. But think about his perspective. He's looking at etern an eternal and time-tested God and saying, this is what he's taking you through now. Is to, is to purify you, to take you through the fire, to refine your faith in what you haven't seen yet. I just finished school, and I'm really excited about that, but one of the downsides of school is testing. <laughs> so there's a Scantron. If you've ever done a Scantron test, you know that they are an instrument of Satan. Um, 
and there's really nothing else I can say about that, except that without tests, I'm not sure how we would learn. We can, enjoy, we can have a great teacher, and I've had several, several great teachers um, throughout my educational career, and you can enjoy sitting with them and learning from them, but if it never came to test time, what would I internalize? The test takes it from I enjoy having this information to this information is mine. I own it. And without that challenge, we might not ever move across that barrier. Here's the, here's the point for us. We sit at the feet of Jesus, the best teacher that ever has existed. And we enjoy listening to, especially when he's saying fun stuff to us, like, hey, I've got your inheritance and I'm keeping it for you and nothing's going to... We like sitting at his feet for that. But there are times where we're going to be faced with a test that says, do you really believe that I have everything that I've promised for you and it's kept? Do you really believe that I'm taking care of you? Because if he never tested you like that, you would never move from, I like hearing this information, to this is who I am. This is part of me now. And then we have a little peek behind the curtain in those last verses, and they're a little bit confusing in verses 10 through 12. But we have a great privilege because of our historical context. Where we were, and we didn't have any choice over when we were born, but because God has put us here, we have a huge, huge privilege. Because he's saying, hey, look, the prophets, the people who wrote down the Old Testament, they wanted to know about what the heck the Spirit was talking about when they're writing down their prophecies. And so they asked God, they sought him, God, what is going on here? Like, I'm looking at my world and this isn't matching up, so this must be for the future. How does this work out? And so Jesus says to him, it's not for you, it's for them. He says, this is not for you. You will not understand this. You write it down, but you won't get it. It's for others. Hey, that's us. We have a huge privilege because of the historical context that we find ourselves in, not because of our choice. We didn't choose when we would be born, but this is God's grace to us that we are here. And that blows my mind. Bless the Lord, man. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's exciting. So our final hope, Our final point is our living hope. This living hope that we've been talking about, that living hope that we have confidently means that we follow our shepherd. This is where the rubber meets the road. And I love, when you read, when you read letters that Peter, or that, that Paul wrote, he will spend a lot of time explaining these really big theological concepts for a couple chapters, and then at the end he'll tack on a few points of, hey, this is how it works out in real life. Peter is like, hey, here's a big, here's a big point, and here's how it works. Here's a big point, and here's how it works. So Peter's really helpful. He's a lot easier to preach than Paul. I'm just throwing that out there. So our living hope means we follow our shepherd, and I'm going to read this out, but we've already looked at this in our reading from Leviticus 19. Our shepherd is holy and our shepherd is loving. These are not mutually exclusive ideas. So let's read it together. First uh, Peter chapter 1 in, in verse, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, now with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Verse 22, having purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, though the living and abiding word of God, or through the abiding word of living and abiding word of God, excuse me. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God, word of the Lord remains forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. See, our living hope means that we follow our shepherd and our shepherd is holy. What is holy? What does it mean to be holy? Pure. Pure? Okay. Any other ideas? Spiritual. Spiritual? Right? Anybody else? Without blemish? Without sin? Yeah, these are all these are all part of it. Like that's that's a component. Those are those are adjectives that would also describe somebody who is holy. But the word itself, at the root of what it's driving at, is separated. Separated for a distinct purpose. So we're looking at two different toothbrushes. Uh, one of them is clean, uh, spotless, pure. Um, and the other one is not clean and black. <laughs> uh, the white bristles are black. Both of these actually are holy in a weird sense. They're separated. This toothbrush here, the dirty one, is holy for uncleanness. <laughs> You use that one to clean the, uh, the grout and the, and the tiles. You use that one to uh, clean uh, maybe your fingernails if they're really dirty. Or you use that one to clean up uh, around the toilet or something like that. It is separated for an unholy purpose, an unclean purpose. The other one, uh, it's separated for a holy purpose. That's one you would use to brush your teeth. It's separated. So... Holiness is one of God's defining characteristics. It's, it's, it's almost the driving uh, characteristic of his character. And this is something that's a little bit unusual to how our world likes to think about God. 
So I want you to hang with me. Because our, our world is totally comfortable with the next idea, well, we're not there yet, that God is love, and God is loving, and God cares about me. But that love is always set in context of his holiness. He is separated. He cannot, he is set, set apart for holy things, so he will not, be, he will not defile himself. He, he is always holy. And we know this uh, when, when we read about uh, Isaiah showing up in the throne room. And there's angels all around the throne of God. And he's dwelling in marvelous light. The angels that sit around with God all day long, how do they describe him? What do they say over and over? Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. For all eternity, holy, holy, holy. Our God is separate. When they look, when these angels look on the, on the presence, the manifest presence of God, they're overwhelmed with His holiness. This is a defining characteristic of who He is. He is love, absolutely. Everything that we know about love, we know because God is love. But, but that is set in the context of His holiness. The angels aren't going up there going, loving, 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 like hugs and kisses. No, holy, holy, holy. And in Hebrew, that's even more emphatic because if you say something once, it's true. If you say something twice, if you say it three times, like it cannot be set back. You can't go, it, it is the holiest. So it's an emphatic, like holy. The definition of holy is God. So what does that have to do with us? Um, you'll notice in verse 13, it starts with a therefore, right? And when you're reading the Bible and you see a therefore, what is the question that you ask? What's the therefore, therefore, right? The therefore is pointing back to everything we've already talked about. Since we know all of these other things are true about what God has done for us and about what he's promising to take care of us, then this. Grasp the truth, apply it here. Prepare your mind for actions. Be sober-minded. This is the attitude you have. This is the imperative. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So where are you looking? At Jesus Christ, past, present, or future? All three in this verse that will be revealed to you at his revelation. We're looking towards the future. That inheritance that is sealed up for us and kept, that is a driving, when we're walking day to day, we're, looking, we're, we're not just looking at our feet. I mean, in Proverbs, we, we, we ponder the way that we go. We look at the path that we're walking on, but we do so with an eye to what Jesus is going to do in the future, what he's already promised for us to get to. So set your hope fully, your hope fully on the grace that is coming. And then imitate the Holy One. This is hard. Um, we, 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 just, we just went through Leviticus and Bible Fellowship, and it was, um, it was some heavy digging. There's a lot of stuff in there that, that, that we are uncomfortable with. We're uncomfortable with reading about slaughtering animals, and yet that's one of the ways that God conveys His holiness. It's bloody and it's dirty, but we are dirty and God is clean, so how do we, how do we jump through that? And, and there's a whole lot of things that we can we could talk about there. But just simply to say that we imitate the Holy One. Be holy as I am holy. Holiness is God's defining character trait. Like, we've already talked about that. 
I want to look. Look at verse 17. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. So he's the judge. The life giver is also the judge. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And what is exile? It's our, it's our sojourning. It's, it's our, it's our, we're, in an un, we're foreigners in a land that we don't belong to. See, exile, exile has the, the idea that we did something wrong. We're, we're exiled from God. And there is a sense where that follows through back from Genesis chapter 3. But, but in this context, in the new context where we're talking about believers in Christ who have been redeemed and who have been given new life, we're not talking about you, you're alienated from Like, God, I've restored you. And now we're walking together in this place that's unfamiliar to you. So as you're walking through that, conduct yourselves with fear. Which is a weird concept for us, because we're like, but, but God's my, my, I like God. Why would I be afraid of him? His defining characteristic is his holiness. When we look at his holiness, we realize our unholiness. We are the black toothbrush. So conduct yourselves with the idea of, you are, you are so holy and you are making me holy, but I'm not there yet. And so you were purchased with somebody else's perfect blood. Be mindful of that as you're living. And this plan uh, from the beginning, in verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Before he started saying, let there be, he knew that he was sending his son. Our time-tested uh, shepherd, he, he's ahead of the game. He knew this was coming. And it's incredible when you really start to think about the Old Testament and what he did with Israel and the ways that he could have maybe done something different. But knowing that this was his plan all along. So the, the question we come to is, can we make ourselves holy? The, the command is here. Be holy as I am holy. Can we make ourselves holy? Through Christ. Exactly. It's, it's, yeah, we can, but we cannot do it by ourselves. There has to be a cooperation. We trust Christ for our salvation, and yet he still calls us to this obedience. And so, as we have trusted our shepherd, we begin to follow him. And we follow him through the tests that he walks us through. And we grow, closer, we grow stronger and we grow closer to him. But something that's interesting here in this turn that we're going to make to our last point, this is an imperative that can only be followed with the help of the Holy Spirit, which we just talked about, and the body of Christ. To be holy requires that you be a part of a body. And you might say, that's, that's a bogus idea. What about those... Um, what about those monks who just kind of isolate themselves? Those guys, they're pretty holy. They, they all have pictures with halos on. Like, they're holy guys, right? But, well, let's just look at the next few verses and what happens. Having purified yourself, for having purified your soul. So holiness, you've, you've gone from being dirty to being pure. By your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That holiness that is a defining characteristic of God 
manifests itself in how we treat other people. Do we love other people? And we read in Leviticus 19 how the first part of that chapter starts with, I am the Lord, I am holy, you be holy like me. And the last section of that chapter is, don't do mean things to people just to be mean. Love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. Those ideas, they, they exist together. So the evidence of holiness in our lives is true love. Well, what is love? Because we live in a culture that says love is just an emotional feeling and it changes with the wind. Um, we're, yeah, we're going to use the same definition. You're right. Right. True love is seeing a need, meeting that need, and not expecting anything in return. So loving people is meeting their needs and not expecting anything. That is a conscious decision. You choose to do that. I choose to love people on a daily basis. And that's a hard decision to make. One of the hardest, the, the metaphor that Christ makes for him and himself is marriage. And so in a marriage, choosing to love your spouse over and over when they just won't fill in the blank, for safety. When they just refuse to, choosing to love them, that is the evidence of true love and the commitment that you've made to them with your vows. What is the motivation for this? Verse 23, since you have been born again, the new life. This is all tied together. And... <laughs> You're born again through a, a, not an, a not a perishable seed, not a seed that can, can die, but an imperishable seed through what? The word of Christ, which is time-tested. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls. The word of the Lord remains forever. It's incredible. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. These are things that we cannot do if we're completely isolated. You can't put away slander if there's nobody around you to slander. So here's something that, that, that I think maybe sometimes we miss. Who is he writing to? Who's Peter writing to? He's writing to people in the church or outside of the church? It's writing to people in the church. So when he says love one another, he's saying love the people around you that are believers. We'll, we'll get to the place where we love outsiders, but it starts here. The community that we build here is built on love for each other. And love for each other means that we have the self-control to choose to love people and put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And the church, for a host of reasons, is the most difficult place to make that happen. Where, where, do you, where, is, where are we so susceptible to get our feelings hurt? In the church. We, we take this very, very seriously, and so when we disagree about something, it feels like the whole, everything weighs on it. The challenge here is to love people who you disagree with in your church. And that's hard. How do we know love? We sung it this morning. By this we know love that he laid down his life. He demonstrated his love in laying down his own life to win us to himself.
So when, when we conclude and we say, hopefully follow the time-tested, life-giving shepherd, when we say hopefully, are we saying, um, you know, just, just shoot for it, you might get it. Hopefully follow, like confidently. Like, I have a future hope, and I'm confident in that, and, and that hope is driving me forward. It's alive, because I am alive, because God has made me alive. Hopefully follow the time-tested. He's shown over and over that he's got this. And the life-giving shepherd. He made dead sheep live sheep so he can lead them through this life. So what? Well, the first is obviously trust the shepherd to follow the shepherd. If you're not trusting him, you can't follow him. If you haven't trusted him for salvation, you're still dead. And you need to be made alive before you can you know, get up and walk after him and follow the shepherd. So that's the first thing that if you haven't done that yet, to deal with that. Um, the next thing would be use your hope of a guaranteed inheritance as motivation for living day to day. Inheritance we start off, even with a generous inheritance that we could look forward to, it doesn't affect how we live day to day. Our propensity is to look at our feet and what's going on right now. The challenge is to use our inheritance as a motivation for what we're doing today. And some of us feel a lot closer to receiving that inheritance than, than some of us, than the others of us. But nevertheless, we keep our eyes on that living hope to drive us forward. Next, um, cooperate with God to be holy like him. So, so that, that prayer aspect and being engaged with his word, the spirit speaks through his word and the spirit will not say anything contrary to his word. So being in that, and there's all kinds of ways to do it. One of the things that I've done here recently is I've made a huge, a great use of my audio Bible and just started listening to it while I'm, I'm pulling weeds at work. And, and I made it, in one week, made it through Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I made it through all of those in one week just by listening while I'm pulling weeds. So there's tons of ways to be engaged with God's Word. There's tons of ways that He speaks. It's not just sitting down at the crack of dawn with a candle and a, and a scribe pen and just like scribbling while you're trying to squint and see. Like, we like that picture, but that's not necessarily how God works. But the point being, cooperate with God to be holy like him. The next point is that we can't do that by ourselves. We have to connect with a church in a meaningful way. There's a lot of us that would just like to come and disappear and not be involved. But the challenge is to connect in a meaningful way. Share your heart with people, which is a dangerous thing to do. When you open up your heart to folks, they can criticize you. When you open up your heart to folks, they can point out sin in your life, which hurts. But we can't be holy if we're not showing... Uh, the, the way that our holiness is manifested is through our love. And so if we don't have a way to practice our love, then whatever, you know? So if you're not connected meaningfully with a the church, then, then that's one thing to do. Um, If your love for other people doesn't stem from God's holiness, then you're probably doing it wrong. And this is just a point for our understanding. 
that holiness and love are tied together. And it, it's, it's, it gets, when you realize this and you see this in scripture and you start to hear how people talk about love outside the church, it gets really, really frustrating. But we also have to understand that we're gonna meet them where they're at. We have to start somewhere in talking to them. And so all of this really just makes me wonder, are you in a position where you are constantly, or where you are being challenged to think seriously about your faith? Do you, come across, do you hear people say things on a regular basis that you go, I don't think that's true. That's not what I believe. And they have an opportunity to push back, why would you believe that? Are you being challenged in what you understand the world to be? If you're not being challenged, there's a danger that maybe you've made a bubble for yourself and there's only Christians in that bubble and Christians are really good at making bubbles. And the hard thing to do is to pop it and to get out of the bubble to people who don't believe the same thing as you do. Because that, when your faith is challenged in that way, you learn how to respond in love and grace. Rather than, my way is right and I know it all. Which is really what I want to do most of the time. Thanks again for listening. If you have any questions or would like more information about Grace Church of Ocala or the sermon you just heard, please visit our home on the web, ocalagrace.org.